Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. Here we are again. It is uh, early to middle of summer. We're recording this in, uh, in early June. And here we are, the craziest, wildest summer I've ever experienced as a uh, church leader. How about you, Isaac? Wild West, man. Wild West. Yeah, it's wild times. Uh, how are you holding up over there? Good. Well, you know, about as good as you can. That's what I tell people. Yeah. I mean, God is God is faithful and encouraging his people. But I mean, it's it's still a, it's a it's a difficult time, a very difficult time. Yeah. You know, for Isaac and I both, uh, we've shared this before on the podcast from time to time, but the Regeneration Project and this podcast, um, this is all sort of a labor of love for both of us because our nine to fives, so to speak, don't uh, involve this. It's um, but it's all connected. You know, both of us uh, serve and lead in local churches. Uh, both in the Bay Area of California, and I know many of you who are listening do so as well, whether it's, you know, on staff as a pastor or something, or just um, as a leader of maybe a small group or of students or college students or whatever, whatever it might be, um, so many of you are involved in helping shape uh, and lead and guide uh, local communities. And uh, we're all feeling it, you know. Isaac and I are feeling it. We're we're at least right now as we're recording this. What are we? This is almost three months of sheltering in place, right? Yeah, I think we might have just just crossed the three mark. In one of my, the the Monday morning updates that I do for my church, I I talked about. I said it as a quarter of a year. Man, like that's we're crazy. approaching a quarter of a year. Yeah, think about that quarter of a year, man. That's you know, my son is um, he's turning two in July. And I was doing the yep. math on this. I was, this yep. is so crazy. I was doing the math on this. A sixth of his life, one sixth of his life has been spent sheltering in place. Yep. I did the same thing with my toddler. Yeah. <laughs> that is same a, thing. That's insane. A sixth of his life, which would be the equivalent in my life of like <laughs> six and a half years. You know yep. what I mean? Like. And so we're all feeling that. I think we're all feeling that right now. It's like, holy cow, three months. Are you kidding me? I, I got to admit yeah. something to you, Isaac, and I want to ask you what you felt about it. I was just talking to someone earlier today, and they were asking me uh, on week one of sheltering in place and doing an online service, what did you think the future was going to look like? And remember, week one, this is like early March. Like yeah. we didn't have all the info, you know, No. I, I told him, I was like, legit, honest answer. I thought, oh man, this is a bummer, but we'll do online services for maybe like three, three, four weeks and then we'll get yeah. back to it. That's what I thought. Uh, what, what most, did you think going back? Yeah. Most people that I talked to at the time and I remember because there was something that always came up and it came up for us is like, I we're going to be back for Easter. Like it's going to be awesome to open up for Easter. Like I hope it goes just to Easter. And then we do this big reopening and we didn't picture that reopening with any social distancing, with any mask. It was like, Oh dude, we just got, they just got to get some more medicine out. There. <laughs> you know, I'm sure they got, they got it already. It's probably in the works. They didn't announce it. And it's just come on. And it was really all centered around Easter. We're going to co come back for Easter. Yeah. 
Yeah, I totally remember that too. I remember Dan and I had conversations about exactly that. It's like, oh man, Easter is going to be the big, you know, celebration. We're back. And uh, Easter came and we found ourselves staring into a little camera in our kids ministry room saying happy Easter to people on the other side, you know, and then again, we're recording this in early June, um, just a week or so ago, a week and a half, maybe, uh, or two weeks, exactly two weeks ago. Uh, we have the George Floyd tragedy in uh, Minneapolis and then all of the fallout from that in these last couple of weeks. So this convergence of a time that was already insanely tense has now been amplified like exponentially so as we yeah. see um, just an uprising on a national level. Uh, you know, for for you, Isaac, as a leader, Talk about a little bit about just the added weight and pressure and uncertainty. What have what have the last week and a half or two weeks been like for you? Yeah, it's very difficult because the times we live in, if you say this, some people hear this mm-hmm. and other people hear this. Um, and if you don't say this, some people take it as this and other people take it as this. And what most people have to realize is that in the, in the shelter in place, pastors have been working like twice as hard. Mm. Most of them haven't taken a day off in weeks. Um, and it's nonstop issue crisis after another. And so they're last minute preparing to give words to a congregation in a format they're not used to being recorded on online. They're used to having you in there and seeing your faces. So my encouragement: Everyone needs to be praying for their pastors more than more than than ever. There's a or actually a um, article that someone sent me about the coming pastoral burnout that we're not prepared for. Yeah, because most pastors are telling themselves, "I got to get my church to the next area. I just got I got to get them out of this. I got to get them out of this." And then it's gonna, you know, it's gonna hit them hard. There's gonna be a wave of stuff after that. So it's been difficult times. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, give away too much of our private conversation and relationship but you you were just telling me the other day over text messages that this has been the busiest and you've been in local church ministry for almost 20 years this has been the busiest last month or so that you've ever had right yeah yeah by by far and i do i do pretty well with with um like high stress when there's thousand things that are you have to juggle and and just the last few weeks i i for sure felt that i'm like okay Lord, we need a break here. Yeah. Like something's got something's something's got to give, um, because it's just been one thing after another for pastors. Both what's going on culturally, and navigating that, and then just what's going on on the local level. And so most people don't realize that your your pastor isn't talking about all the the calls and and funerals they might have done. You're not hearing that. And you're not hearing about it in your church community because you're not at church. Yeah. So you, you, people are unaware of 90% of the weight that's on your average pastor's back right now. Yeah. And so be praying for them. Be praying for your local leaders, man. They need it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just mathematical, right? It's not just like, oh, I had to do a graveside service and that was an extra hour of my day. I had to go, you know, visit the NICU because this, this young couple lost their ch- newborn child yeah. and all of it, social distancing. That was two hours of my day. Oh, three extra hours, not a big deal. Those are real yeah. life examples from my life from the last yeah. two months, you know, graveside memorial, social distancing for a beloved saint in our church who passed away. And then less yep. than a month later, visiting the NICU at a Kaiser hospital with a young newlywed married couple who was saying goodbye to their newborn daughter who lived for, uh, I think it was 19 hours and, you know, just blessing her and praying over her. That was three hours, you know, of time, but it's like 30 hours of emotional weight, Absolutely. preparation, prayer, mourning, you know, all of that. And that's, you know, that's not just me. That's most leaders right now. That's you too. I mean, you know, you've shared stories with me of like literal loss of life in your church that has been happening that you've got to, you know, shepherd people through and, and yeah, it's tough. So, uh, again, like Isaac said, certainly pray for your pastors and church leaders. And many of you listening are the pastors and church leaders. Yeah. So today on the episode, you know, we don't do this a whole lot. We focus a lot on theology and specifics about the mission of the church, but we thought it'd be important. And I, I hope helpful, particularly to those who are serving and leading in the local church, to talk to someone who could speak to us as leaders in these strange times. And so um, on the podcast today, Isaac and I are chatting with Todd Bolsinger, who is uh, the chief of leadership formation at Fuller Seminary. He's an author. He's written several books. Uh, It takes a church to raise a Christian, Showtime, and uh, probably most well-known for his most recent book that came out uh, four or five years ago now, Canoeing the Mountains, which is about Christian leadership in uncharted territory. Um, he also uh, wrote a follow-up book to that short little ebook that just came out called Leadership for a Time of Pandemic. Uh, I would highly recommend those. But Todd gets into, as leaders, how can we posture ourselves, position ourselves, and leverage um, you know, whatever we have right now to lead well in this time, uh, to not burn out and flame out the way Isaac is concerned about that so many of us are, are concerned about. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here that's both practically helpful and inspiring and paradigm shifting. So um, we hope that this is an encouragement and a help to you as you lead and serve your community and congregation. So here is our conversation with Todd Bolsinger. Hey, Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, your work has been um, really, really helpful for, for me as uh, someone who, who deeply loves the local church and also has spent you know, the last 16 years serving and leading in local churches. And uh, I, I first read your book, Canoeing the Mountains, a couple of years ago when it came out and have now found myself now, as we're recording this in early June, going back to it uh, because the ideas you you propose in the book, when I first read it, I was like, oh, these are interesting ideas, and maybe I'll try to sprinkle in some of these concepts mm-hmm. as I go. Now we're in a world where everything is so uncharted territory. I mean, everything feels like we none of us have ever been here before. Like, I... I've never led through a global pandemic, you know, that sort of thing. 
Um, so I want to get into all of that. Uh, and Isaac and I both sort of serving and leading in the local church. If nothing else, this will just be a helpful conversation for us. But um, first, t- talk a little bit about you. And uh, you're on staff at Fuller Seminary, my alma mater. Uh, and what you do there is really fascinating. But you also served and led in a local church for many years before that. So tell us a little bit about what you do right now at Fuller and then what you did before that that led to, to here and now. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So yeah, I am at Fuller, which is my uh, alma mater. I did two degrees there as well, and um, went back in 2014 to become a vice president and to serve on the faculty. And my, my basically my goal is to help Fuller get its research and its resources out to leaders and learners, whether they need our degrees or not. Um, our job is to serve people in particularly people in leadership in real time. That's really what we do for Prem. We, uh, we know that not everybody needs another degree and they don't need a set of initials and they don't need any more debt, but in a changing world, they are always in need of new formation and new training and new learning. And so we make that available to folks. Yeah. And you were a pastor before this, right? So yeah. So 27 years. Yeah. For 10 years, I was at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. I was on their staff. They took me on the staff when I was 23. I became <laughs> their college director and uh, they sent me to seminary. <laughs> I'd worked uh, for a youth for Christ. I was doing youth evangelism and they said, you're going to run out of those little youth talks you do by Christmas. So we're going <laughs> to send you to seminary where they'll teach you how to study and teach the Bible. And I was glad I ran out of them by Thanksgiving. Yeah. So I needed to go to school and they sent me to school and they paid for it. Every, every place I go, I tell people about a church that invested in me when I was nothing, nothing more than some enthusiasm and some arrogance. Yeah. And um, because of that, I was able to go on and get a PhD and, um, I, so I had both a master's of divinity and a PhD from Fuller and then spent 17 years as a senior pastor in San Clemente. Um, and it was just so long stretches, love the church, still an ordained Presbyterian pastor, but now at Fuller. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why that part of your story, I think is so important, at least for, for those who are listening right now, I want folks to know, um, you're not, and I know this about you because of our interactions and from reading your work, you're not, um, you know, an academic intellectual elite, uh, living in the sort of stratosphere of hypotheticals. You're somebody who has lived in the trenches of day in, day out, serving a local congregation and trying to guide them in the process of uh, living on mission uh, with God in their part of the world, as well as being formed into the likeness of Christ together. Um, and now you're sort of doing that for for an academic institution, trying to get some of the, the work out there to, to help church leaders. Um, you know, I, I, to set up sort of the conversation that we want to have specifically with you uh, based on your work in Canoeing the Mountains, as well as the, the newest book, um, I want to sort of throw it over to Isaac. Isaac, you and I both have been serving and leading in local churches for uh, almost two decades, each of us, you know, going on 16, 17 years or so now. And you're leading right now in the throes of it. You know, you're in the midst of it. Uh, I'm on sabbatical, full disclosure right now. So I'm on, I'm on the sidelines and Isaac is at uh, the best possible <laughs> time. God saw fit before the foundations of the world to ordain J Kim a sabbatical at this place in this time, man. I am. Uh, I, there is a cloud of guilt hovering over me every day of the sabbatical as I feel that's not true. I don't feel guilty, but I do pray quite a bit for, for my friends who are leading, but you're seriously, cause you and I talk a lot, Isaac, you're yeah. seriously in the throes of it right now. Yeah. Um, 
talk talk a little bit about you for you leading a large church in the bay area of california and mm-hmm. this will set up sort of what we want to get into with todd yeah. what, what yeah. are you you know not the ins and outs of the logistics and the details there's so much of that but what are you feeling emotionally and sort of navigating um intellectually and mentally and then all of it sort of congruent with your spirituality what are you experiencing right now as you navigate yeah such, such strange, difficult, uh, this is an overused word, but it's true, unprecedented uh, cultural moment like this. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, you know, it's different for everybody, but when, when the shelter in place first hit, just not doing a church service was like, are you kidding me? Like, we're just going to be forced to do stuff online. That was bad enough. And, you know, immediately I'm going, okay, how, how do I, support the staff how do we are we gonna have to lay people off are we gonna have to to cut this or cut that and so i honestly got through about two and a half months of this pretty well i mean i put my head down got stuff done got the church ready to go um and just honestly personally in the last three weeks i i I can now feel it starting to take its toll because we've had the mental illness spike out of the roof we've had the, the, you know, people losing their lives and, and not being able to see their loved one because they're not allowed to see them as, as they die type of thing. We've seen the economic devastation. We're seeing all of that. And literally every day now for like two and a half weeks, there's been something where it's oh, like, dear God, no, not, not this. Like, and so I am at the point where I could honestly feel like, dude, when's, when's this going to end? And then you combine that with all the stuff going on nationally and culturally and your church expecting you to have every precise, perfectly picked words to communicate while there's landmines everywhere on the field. So I think for pastors, even the ones who are doing pretty, pretty well, the length of this has really set us up to a point where we're, we're going, man, we, we're, we're just doing our best to lead. We need this. We need to have have a break, type type of thing. So the the metaphor of the canoeing is is totally apt because it's like, no no seminary program taught you this stuff. N- nothing did. Yeah, and Todd, you mentioned that at the beginning of of canoeing mm-hmm. the mountains. You know, seminary didn't teach you <laughs> to navigate yeah. any of this yeah. stuff. It didn't teach any of us um, how to navigate uncharted waters. You know, based on not just what I, what Isaac is saying, but but what Isaac is saying, I think it, it epitomizes what so many church leaders today are feeling and experiencing on the ground. You know, help us identify and name, even if you can. Uh, based on even your work right now, working with so many church leaders around the country and the world, help us, you know, I don't even know how to ask the question, but help us identify, name, frame some of the stuff that we're feeling and experiencing that we haven't felt or experienced before. Yeah. Well, in one sense, you guys have really done a great job of just doing that because where we are as a church and especially where church leaders are is unprecedented. So the the metaphor of canoeing the mountains, of course, comes from the Lewis and Clark expedition, where they were going to find a water route to the Pacific Ocean, right? They were planning to canoe their way from up the Missouri to find the connection to the Columbia River and make it all the way to the Pacific Ocean, that water route. 
they found, of course, the Rocky Mountains disrupting that. And then what was what was powerful about it is because of their mental frame and their experience as Europeans from the East, they had no mental model for something like the Rocky Mountains. When the Mandan tribe told them, hey, there are mountains, they thought Shenandoah Mountains. They thought rounded hills that might go up to four or 5,000 feet that they could imagine dragging a canoe over. They didn't think... 14,000 foot, 300 miles wide mountains that you couldn't possibly canoe through. And so the metaphor of canoeing the mountains is important because what you can't do if you run out of water is keep paddling harder. Mm. And where Mm. so many leaders are is that what we have learned is whatever we did in the past that got us here, we should just do more of to keep going. And that's why we're exhausted. Because we're literally in a completely new world. Like um, one, one illustration that is true is that one historian said that when Meriwether Lewis looked over the Lemhi Pass between Idaho and Montana, Montana and Idaho, and looked over and saw the Rocky Mountains, he actually knew less about the American West than Neil Armstrong had known about the moon when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. Neil Armstrong had seen maps of the moon. He'd seen pictures of the moon. Lewis and Clark had nothing. And this is where so many of us are. We are, we literally were trained for a different world. And the hardest thing that most of us experience, I mean, we're pastors. If we've gone to seminary, many of us have masters of divinity. It's like we're superheroes, right? (laughs) And so, and all of a sudden we get to this place, everybody's looking at us and they're saying, so what do you do next? And the only honest answer you can give is, I don't know. Mm. And not only do I not know, nobody knows Hmm. if anybody tells you that they have this perfectly figured out for this next moment they're lying to you because we have never been in a place where we're having a pandemic and a social uprising at the exact same time Hmm. at a time when the church has already experienced 40 years of destabilization moving from christendom to post-christendom so we are in a perfect storm of leadership stress And most of us were not trained for this at all. And that means we have a profoundly difficult challenge, which is to how to learn as we go. And that's, that's in the books. I talk about adaptive leadership, your ability to adapt to the changing environment by leading through learning and taking people through loss. Yeah. Uh, I want you to touch on one thing you just said, just so we can frame a little bit more of the conversation historically. You just briefly mentioned it as an aside, you know, the last 40 years, the move from Christendom to post-Christendom. Explain what you mean by that, because that might be confusing to some listeners. Like, wait, I thought we were, you know, Christian nation or whatever. Or I'm still a Christian. What do you mean it's post? Explain that on a sort of general um, widespread level. So the way to think about Christendom is this. Christendom means that Christianity within the culture has a home court advantage, Mm. that the the culture supports Christianity. So an example I use is, I told you I worked at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. Well, somebody gave me an article from the Los Angeles Times from December 1963. Uh, It's four months before I was born, right? They gave me this article because in 1963, Hollywood Presbyterian Church had 9,000 members and it was featured in the Los Angeles Times. Now, why I got the article is because in that same page, in the LA Times, on that same page, there was a box that had a week's worth of daily Bible readings. Hmm. So if you can think about the Los Angeles Times helping you with your daily morning quiet time, you can remember when culture supported Christianity. And there are places in the world where 
people in our country where people are starting to argue about that, that culture should support Christianity, that we should have a home court advantage, whatever it is. But most of us know we're not. We're not in that world anymore. Yeah. And if we were trained, and most of our training in seminaries still makes us think as if we were. Mm. So if we were trained yeah. for that world where our job is to just uh, be a kind of what they call, sometimes call a vendor of religious services or a service provider for spiritual needs, well, then now we find ourselves in a totally different world where we actually are, the mission field is no longer over seawater, it's just across the sidewalk, or or maybe it's slightly down the next pew, or or now where we are in this world, it's it's your neighbor who might be coming on Facebook Live and stumbling across your your site. I mean, it's that, yeah. it's that real to us. Hmm. I remember um, a story I've shared once before with Jay, but I was in a, a band a, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, and we were... <laughs> I'm from the Bay Area, California, so we're we're way more post Christendom than other places. Yeah. But there's still pockets, like little tiny pockets in the country. And after a, a show that we did, a, a kid just comes up to me, really broken, and wrestling with, you know, how can how can we claim to be like the ones that have the only truth, like our way is the one way. So I'm, go, I'm I start talking, and we're, I'm talking world religions with this kid, like. Buddhism, Muslim, and then like 15, I don't know how long into the conversation, but then I realized he was just talking about like, well, there's Methodist churches and Lutheran churches in his community and Baptist churches, but the default operating system was still, well, of course, everyone's Christian. We're a Christian. Uh, and it was just, so. It, it, I was more in a foreign world there mm -hmm. than I have been in other countries compared to the Bay Area. Yeah. Because I can't imagine a kid in the Bay Area asking that question, like, how do I know Lutherans or baptist or yeah. something but that gets to the heart of it is that 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 world doesn't exist i mean there may be mm -hmm. tiny pockets in the country but it's it's gone it's yeah. gone and and notice what's interesting is notice how disoriented you were by what in any part of the, in yeah. many parts of the country would have been a normal question how, what's the difference yes. between different christian denominations how can they all be christians if they all have different names you were in a totally different world because of the context you came from and this is yep. really important, yep. actually, because the two things we can know is our context is almost always more important than any content. Hmm. Hmm. We start with a default to whatever we knew or whatever we learned. Just always remind people that the word familiar and the word family are related. So anytime you're on familiar territory, it feels like you're at home. And anytime it's unfamiliar, it feels like you're lost, <laughs> like, right? So now we live in a world where almost every moment somebody in the room feels lost and someone's trying to argue this is the way it should be. Mm. And we are just missing each other all the time. And, and a second part of that is we are trained to default back to the way we were trained. Mm. So one of, just notice, like in the middle of this pandemic, immediately people started saying, well, how can we do worship services online? And when can we get back to normal? Mm. Well, mm -hmm. think about this. What if we can't gather in large gatherings for the next three years? Yeah. What if we can't sing for the next three years? So what does it mean then to be the church? Mm. If it's not a large gathering where people are gathering to sing and worship and worship means singing, what does it mean? Now we have to ask ourselves totally new questions and have to prepare to lead totally different conversations where we're completely disoriented. I think what you just said, Todd, is a great 
launching point because the moment you just said that, even as a hypothetical, what if we can't get back to large gatherings for three years? What if this our the singing life of the church is going to be limited now because of you know how how the virus travels and all those sorts of things? I can feel the the shudder in the bones of so many church yeah. leaders who are listening. Like, wait, Todd, what are you talking about? I thought you know by October. We're all back to normal. And the language here is so important because the the most important thing is not necessarily the outer form of what happens. The reality is it may very well be at some point in the coming months, maybe the next six months or even longer, who knows. But at some point, the form may look somewhat similar where we're in a building and maybe there's some form of music or whatever. But I think the language that you just mentioned is so important that if our mindset is when, when, when can we get back that misses something, right? That that's a sort of backtracking to use the, the Lewis and Clark metaphor. It would essentially be, we're just not gonna, we're just not going to traverse those mountains. We're just going to go back to the stuff that was familiar, which would then inevitably mean you don't move forward, right? You don't yeah, trek yeah. into new land. Well, and this is the this is the challenge that everybody in the church is in at this moment, right? What happens when you get to a place where you look into, you get a glimpse of the future, and you are completely disoriented? Like all you know is everything in front of you is totally different than everything behind you, and you are completely an expert in the world behind you. And the great temptation is to want to keep not only go back, but to say that everybody should go back. Like, um, like that we should argue, like, just think about the number of folks. I, I see this, I, I'm in a more mainline denomination. And very often we argue that we will spend time arguing that we need to keep together the great tradition of canoeing and teach people how important canoeing is. And we should tell stories of the great canoers of the past rather than drop the canoes hmm. and keep going forward that we're actually explorers, not canoers. Hmm. And we're actually about moving the mission of God forward, not holding on to the traditions of the past. And what a crisis does is it gives you an opportunity to ask the larger questions that about your legacy practices. And what we need to discern is so important we can't lose and what we need to drop so that we can do what's the most important thing. And this is cr- these are critical conversations that have to happen right now in real time. And most of us find ourselves um, just overwhelmed to be able to have them. One of the jarring things about what you're saying is, and I love the way you said it and have said it in your written work, we're experts in what's behind us, but we're, you know, complete novices in what's in front of us. And I think uh, when that initial feeling isn't, um, if, if we're not aware of that feeling and where that feeling is coming from, the temptation for leaders like me, uh, driven in part, in large part by my own insecurity, is to backtrack because I know that I can lead well in, in the territory that I've already led through because I'm familiar, yeah. I'm an expert in that yeah. territory, so I can maintain my position as a leader. I think where your work has been so helpful is that we can confront that insecurity but need to make dramatic changes in our perspective and in our posture and approach if we're going to continue leading into the future. So I wanna ask you about that. Like, okay, right now, coronavirus, major uprising nationally, um, totally uncharted waters, uh, uncharted mountains, you know, whatever it is, 
what do leaders now need to do? What is the, what's the change? What are the shifts that need to happen in leaders in spite and in overcoming our insecurities in order to lead, to serve and to lead our people well uh, over these mountains? What, what does it look like technically to put down our canoe, canoes and become explorers together? Yeah. Well, the very first thing you have to do is you've got to recognize that your first responsibility is to lead the learning. It's to literally say, I don't know, and we are going to go. <laughs> like, we're going to keep going, but we don't know everything. So we're going to go step by step. So you start by leading the learning. And and actually, the story of Lewis and Clark is an interesting one because they're, they're incredibly frail. Uh, they're interesting historical characters who have all kinds of fraught issues. You know, they were slave owners. They were people of their own uh, generation. They had all kinds of biases. But one place where they were remarkable is when they got over the Lemhi Pass, they recognized how deeply they needed the Na Native American people. And all of a sudden, they became learners. And particularly, they listened to a teenage Native American nursing mother a little a girl literally 17 years old named Sakagawea we we learned her name is Sakagawea in high school but her name is really Sakagawea they listened to her and all of a sudden her voice became really important for leading them to the people who they would collaborate with to make it through the mountains the Shoshone and I think we have a moment here to think about this missionally that the more we can add more diverse voices into our process of discernment and the more that we can pay attention to people who are at home in this place right so not everybody is uh, it has been had privilege and power in Christendom like I had other people who have been outside the church who have had to find other ways of acknowledging them. It's amazing today to watch churches, really large churches now talking to church plants and people who've had to be in home church networks and people who have had to think about mission where they don't have resources now are learning to collaborate together. So learning is the first thing. It takes the humility of learning. And the second thing I'll just say is you have to confront loss. If you're a person who, if you came on the journey because you're the expert canoeer and we tell you to drop the canoe and now you're going to walk and you're going to carry stuff, that's an identity hit. And for many of us, that experience of loss is what many people are experiencing in their churches right now. And so, so you're always helping people deal with learning and you're helping them deal with loss and you're navigating people through learning and loss to keep moving forward. Here's, you know, that brought to my mind something that I had to shift at least in the first eight weeks of preaching is kind of my style and the DNA of, of our church is I'm a exegetical preacher. You're going to come and hear the Greek and the Hebrew, and we're going to go verse by verse, um, which I think is important. But, but for the first two months coming out of this, people just needed hope and encouragement. Yeah. Um, and, they didn't have the many people didn't have the the resources to sit through a hour long exegetical sermon as we continue our series in the book of yeah. Leviticus type of thing. And so it was a, a shuttle a subtle shift, but it was difficult for me because I don't I'm not good at preaching like like that. I'm not that's not like if I have to pick a genre, it's like, man, I, I could I could play the blues, but don't make me play pop punk, man. I'm not going to yeah, do that. It's yeah. going to be horrible. And that's, you know, but you had to make that shift. And I remember yeah. telling someone else on staff, like, these sermons are half the length. They're more simple. They're easy. And I'm just having way harder time doing them. 
way ahead. Well, and, and and notice this. Notice that for you, the the sense of loss, right? Yeah. Like, like you are having to be in in an uncomfortable position, but the reason you do it is because you're attuning to your people. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what happens in these moments, so part of what you do in learning is you learn to be a much better listener. And listening is not just about content. Listening is mostly about empathy. And so the more you mm-hmm. attune to your people and they tell you, look, we're exhausted, we're scared, we're insecure, we're not sure. We don't know if our church is going to make it or if it's going to be here. Yeah. We we don't know where God is in the middle of this. Um, do you know anybody who has been through this? I'm, my dad's 77 years old. And I asked him in the middle of this pandemic, I said, Dad, have you ever been through anything like this? He said, no, not even close. The polio thing a little bit. My, my mother mm-hmm. said, we, I had a cousin who had polio. We heard it about it on the edge, but there was no social media. There was no, yeah. it wasn't, not everybody, there was no uh, uh, shelter in place for the whole culture, the whole cunt world. It's so unprecedented that it's going to feel disoriented. And the only thing we can do is be open to learning acknowledge the losses and then take people and stay with people through it. We lead people relationally through these moments, but you get really clear that you're leading people through a mission. It's not just to survive, it's to thrive and to continue on with the mission of God in the world. You get into, you, you explain three key concepts, ideas that all converge there. They meet at an intersection that create the capacity for, leaders to lead effectively as learners in in guiding and nurturing communities through uncharted territory Uh, these three key concepts adaptive capacity technical competence and then relational congruence and i know know they're big ideas and we'll point folks to the book uh, at the end and we'll link it on our on our show notes but talk about each of those those ideas adaptive capacity technical competence relational congruence and their importance partic- at all times for leaders, but particularly in times like this. And uh, maybe talk about um, how you've seen, if you have, maybe how you've seen some of this stuff uh, come to, to life, you know, in a season like this, as you've talked to other leaders yeah. uh, around the yeah, country. Yeah. So, so you guys are, actually are both demonstrating it just a minute ago when we talked about that you care about the scriptures and wanting to bring them well to people. So technical competence literally means you are competent at all the things people need you to be competent at. It's where you have credibility as a leader. So what allowed the core of discovery to follow Lewis and Clark off the map is they'd been really competent on the map. <laughs> they had demonstrated they are good leaders. So I say, you've got to be really competent with texts and traditions and with teams and with community and with individuals and with groups. Like you have to demonstrate when people have asked you to do something, you've demonstrated that you have credibility. And, and this is important. I would say everybody who comes to seminary, someone said to them, hey, you're the best Christian I know. You should go pro. And, you, and so you, you go off to professional Christian school. And what we give you is a lot of technical competence so that you can stand up and rightly divide the word of truth. You can basically minister to people well. You know how to minister with ethics. That's technical competence. If you don't have that credibility, you can't move people forward. But technical competence and credibility needs to be met with relational congruence and trust. And relational congruence means you're the same person every place I meet you, that I can trust that you're not just a person who's um, got it in their head, but you are a person, a whole person that I can trust with 
my with this journey. I always say that if if you gave me the best mountain guide, but the person was who was just technically competent, but they were personally reckless. They liked taking risks that were un, uh, that were um, un, unwise, or they were people who every night got high and then they climbed the next day. I don't want to follow that person. I need that person to, to be relationally congruent also. And that's where tr deep trust is. That's why your capacity to say, um, I am, I promise you that I will treat you well and I will do my very best for you. And I don't know what's next, but we will find it together. We'll learn it together is where relational congruence. When those two things come together and there's high amounts of trust, then you can add adaptive capacity. And adaptive capacity is your capacity to learn, deal with loss. And the hard part is navigate competing values. We are having to, this is where we are right now with the whole question about should we open up or what do you do with the pandemic? You know, yeah. one of our competing values is we want to gather and worship God together. The other one is we want to love our neighbor and protect people who are vulnerable. And what's hard is you, you can't do both. Mm -hmm. Competing values means you have to make a decision. I always remind people decision is related to the root word for incision it means you need to cut something out in order to move forward it's painful so you have to make a decision based on competing values and so that credibility and trust and then the capacity to lead people through the learning and then the loss is how you people move forward in uncharted territory i actually um i'm pulling it up right now just the complexity of reopening i i put an equation up for our church and it was y equals Y represents when we reopen. And then there's a math equation. It's CX plus WX minus PX plus SX minus FX minus QX. And it was basically each letter represent one was you got churches, we obey civil authorities. W, we have a witness to the world and how we respond. Pre the, P, there's also prophetic nature to the church. You tell you tell the powers that be when and if they go too far. Then there's the safety issue. Then there's the faithfulness issues. And the point was really to demonstrate what you just said. And at the end of it, I go, who can solve that equation? Yeah. Who knows the precise time exactly when it's right to, to reopen or to take the next step? Like, no, if you think you know that, man, you don't know the scriptures because scriptures tell you you can't lean on your own understanding. Like, and, it, and that's the, the absolute complexity of the times we're living in. And it's overwhelming for pastors all across the country because there's people in their, in their congregations who value one of those letters mm -hmm. more than the other. And this person's temperament is all, it's, it's not even like, it's just their temperament. They're really concerned about safety. This dude over here doesn't care. And then there's voices telling you nonstop. Yeah. And so it's just yeah. the leadership demand is, is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yep. And there's your competing values, right? Right there in the midst of those different, you have all these different competing values that you have to navigate. And one of the most important parts of recognizing this is that for so many of us, when we're at those moments, what we want is security. We want certainty. We want familiarity. So what we try to do is we try to make it certain. And, and so one of the hardest parts for leading at this moment is you cannot plan ahead. I was having this conversation with Andy Crouch, who wrote the article about, uh, are we in an ice age or are we in the yeah, winter yeah. or in a blizzard? Right. And he said, we're basically, yeah, he thinks yeah, we're yeah. in a little ice age. We're going to be in this for a while. He said, he thinks the greatest, the thing that's going to take the deepest toll on leaders is the inability to plan Every single plan is going to have an asterisk for a long time. Mm. If we can meet or if we can't, will we, I mean, I, right now I had 15 speaking engagements cancel on a weekend. Now I have had 25 webinars and now I've done like 10 more podcasts like this since then. Yep. So I'm speaking to more people than ever, 
but not face to face. And now when people book me to speak, it has an asterisk. We'll either have you face to face or on a webinar. Mm. And the difference in what I charge and how that works, it's all up in the air. <laughs> Right. I was going to ask you. I don't think. I yeah. don't think the the digital rates are are as good as the uh, in person rates. Not at the me- not at the moment. So there's some <laughs> loss in the middle of that, right? So and what you start to recognize the moment is that is what we're navigating all the time. People want things to be want to plan, so they want predictions. So what I tell people, and you guys are from the Bay Area, so this will make sense, is you don't predict. Instead, you prototype. Mm-hmm. You don't make predict big predictions. You do small experiments and you try things and you learn from them and you start using small experiments like, okay, we're going to experiment with having a, having a curriculum that everybody can use in their home. And maybe next week we'll try to see if some folks are comfortable uh, doing like social distancing with the close friends or family members and being together, what would a church look like if we're gathered in that way? And we start asking ourselves some different ways of moving into the future by doing experiments. And the key to experiments is not to ask, did it work? The key to the experiments to ask is what did we learn? We're back to learning again. What did we learn? Yeah, I, I want to ask you a little bit uh, pragmatically about relational congruence specifically yeah. as it pertains to, again, on the ground, real time realities for leaders. Um, you know, Isaac leads a church of uh, over a thousand people um, and so many friends who are serving and leading in local churches in the area. Uh, most of them leading in smaller churches, but several of them leading in churches that are really large and, and there's, you know, mm-hmm. just their staff alone is like 50 staff and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of thing. I, I could imagine some leaders listening to this saying, okay, relational congruence sounds great. You know, establishing the sort of rapport and trust that's necessary, uh, built not just on my technical competence, but the fact that these folks that I'm asking to follow me actually have a relational connection to me and are willing to follow. What does that look like? How does that even work for particularly for those who are leading in contexts that are larger? I can imagine them listening, saying, mm-hmm. well, Todd, I, I've got 1,200 people in my church or 1,800 people mm-hmm. or 2,500 people. How do I create relational congruence with all those folks? Like, mm-hmm. talk to talk about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Well, for one of the things is you get really clear on your core values. You get really clear on what will never change. Like, what is essential? So, I'll use a Lewis and Clark example. You know, their uh, their water their entire core of discovery was built on an economic model. If you can control the water route, you can control the trade route. It'd be like owning the internet today, right? That like it's easier to take raw material over water than over land. Well, all of a sudden they hit the Lemhi Pass. They realize there's no water route, and they don't go back. Why don't they go back and tell Jefferson, change the economics? Like, like you had a wrong economic plan. We should tell you immediately. The answer is they had a deeper value. And the deeper value is one that Jefferson himself taught Meriwether Lewis. He was an enlightenment person. And his deepest value was the belief that the growth in human knowledge would lead to the growth in human happiness. That was actually his deepest value. So even more than finding a water route, it was exploring the world because they believe that would make the world better. Now, as a Christian, I would argue some of those values, but I should be clear on mine. And we should be really clear as an organization, as a church, here's why we exist. Here's what's most important about us. Here's our gift, our charism that we give to the community. And here's our deepest beliefs. And these things we are not going to compromise on 
but that's a pretty small list and we're going to be willing to experiment with everything else and we're going to and we're going to talk as transparently as possible about these different things so you know is one of our values that we can um that every single person will be able to make a, a, a an income on working at the church well there may come a day when nobody can make an income working at a church um Paul didn't make an income working at a church. <laughs> Paul was a tent maker. Yeah. So maybe one of the core values is going to are going to drive us to change some deeply held assumptions about the churches that we're going to have to deal, deal with. So it's getting really clear. Relational congruence is as much about getting really clear that in every place our values are the same, our beliefs are the, are important, that we're the same person showing up and we're as transparent as we can. Yeah, and it's good to remember that the church has always been adaptive. So throughout church history, there's been stuff that hits. That's like, we can't let that, we, we can't let that happen. I mean, stuff we take for like granite, that's normal. Like that we all have Bibles. I mean, there was a conversation yeah. once like, wait a second, we can't give everyone, everyone can have a Bible, man. Like this is going to get out of hand. And now it's just, we want to get, what do we, you don't have a Bible. We're going to get you one for free type of thing. If you come to church. And so the church, our, our people, our tradition um, is a tradition and a people that take what the world throws at us and we adapt because we think we uh, are following the spirits leading who goes, mm-hmm. who goes before us. Well, and Jesus himself talks about this and, and, and here's the wrestling point for the, for faithful people. We've always been called to adapt. Jesus says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins, but we've always been re- deeply, deeply committed to our old wineskins. <laughs> and so we are both, and this is the struggle. Most pastors I know, most leaders, the most difficult part of change isn't the changing world. That's, that's disoriented. Pandemics, social movements, oh my gosh, that's disoriented. What's really painful is the resistance of your people inside the church. It's when you say, we're going to keep moving, we're going we're gonna to be faithful to Jesus, we're going to try to do everything we can to embody and to express the kingdom, and everybody starts pulling back. Mm. And that's why in, in the books that I talk about, mostly what I end up talking about is how to help people to have the resilience to deal with internal resistance, because that's really the struggle. So you're right, the, our movement has always been one about adapting, but it's also always been about a people who are resisting that adapting. Mm. That's great. Todd, um, we have a lot of folks who are listening who, uh, in particular, are whether it's a you know full time church role or in a volunteer capacity or something in between, who are just doing their absolute best to try to serve and to lead and to guide um, people uh, to follow Jesus faithfully, and in particular, uh, emerging generations, new generations, younger generations, and uh, a lot of the time not only because of the changing times, but because of such increasing speed when it comes to generational shifts. You know, I've read that Gen Z might actually be the last formal generation because the shifts are so quick now, we may not even be able to name generations anymore. It's just, you know, so seismic, so suddenly. Um, it, It creates an even an increased feeling of uncharted territory. So um, talk to all of us who are trying our absolute best to lead and to serve faithfully as we sort of wind down our conversation. Give us a word of maybe encouragement and or challenge as we think about leading and serving uh, and navigating our congregations and communities through uh, such challenging times. Well, I would say um, the most important thing you need to lead well 
in a rapidly changing world are partners. I think that I think the single biggest thing that we could um, maybe give thanks to God for that could get rid of is the idea of a solo pastor, or maybe even a single lead pastor. Like um, in the scriptures, you have Paul and Barnabas together. You have Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy together. You have groups of them. You have communities and partnerships. You have Lewis and Clark, who are actually known as Lewis and Clark. They're known that way so much that people don't even know that places like Lewiston, Idaho were named after Meriwether Lewis because they're used to just thinking them as one person. And even as the two of you talk, talk here and model a partnership, we need partnerships that are, are, are much more um, substantive. So I would just say the future is going to be in shared ministry mm. and in shared leadership. And if we, and that's why it's going to require us to grow in our emotional intelligence because our relationships are going to be really, really critical. Um, I, if I, if I always said, if I was a bishop and I'm not from a tradition as a bishop, if I was a bishop, I would basically say, if I could to anybody who is under me as the bishop, and I have bishop friends who laugh at me every time I say this, um, I would say, look, if you try to lead anything, without a coach, a mentor, a spiritual director, or a therapist, if you try to lead anything without a partner, then you are doing leadership malpractice. Because in a rapidly changing world, the vulnerability of, of, of leadership requires security and support of relationships. So it's by far, I think, the most important thing. And and deep collaborative relationships, more diverse voices, more people in the conversation. Um, we're going to, we're going to go on a long journey and we actually need to partner our way through it. That's a great word. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, a couple of books, uh, that are super helpful. We're just scratching the surface on some of these ideas, but a couple of years ago, like as we've talked about, uh, you wrote a fantastic book called canoeing the mountains, which, um, delves deep into all of these ideas. And then just recently, uh, you released an ebook called leadership for a time of pandemic, which really sort of unpacks some of the ideas, uh, in canoeing the mountains for this particular cultural moment that we're in. Um, so Todd, thank you so much, not just for your time here with us, but your incredible work that's so helpful for the church at large. Uh, for people who are interested uh, in your books, as well as some of your other work, you do so much and put a mm -hmm. lot of content out there. What's the best way for them to find you, your work and, and connect with you? So I have this great team that's really good at technology. Um, and they basically said this, if you just text the word uncharted, uncharted, to 66866, then you get a link to all the stuff that we post about Uncharted Territory, the stuff we're doing on the Full Leadership Platform. You get a bunch of free material. It's just Uncharted 66866. You, you are leading us into Uncharted Territory because that's the first time in 40 podcast episodes that a guest has pointed people to a text mechanism to get connected to stuff. Good, goodbye to websites, just text. There you go. Yeah, just it. text text one word and it all brings you right into it. Uncharted 66866. Yeah. Too many sixes in a row for a pastor. Glad <laughs> there's an eight in the middle of it, but uncharted to 66866. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah we'll link all of that yeah. in the show notes on our website as well. Thanks. Todd, seriously, thank you again for your work and um, for you championing the cause of the local church. Uh, it means the world to me on a personal level, and I know it's yeah. helped a lot of folks. So, yeah, we're cheering you on. Good. Yeah, well, bless you both in, in your leadership and in your writing too, Jay. Yeah. Mm -hmm.